Hi, this is John Barnes, and you're listening to Cop On. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Josh Williams from the excellent Analyzing Anfield podcast, which you can get on the Blood Red channel. So search for Blood Red, search for Analyzing Anfield. You'll be able to find it. If you don't know it already, listeners, do tune in. It's a fascinating insight into all things uh, Liverpool. Um, and so, Josh, thank you very much for for joining me today. And uh, I've just got a, a question first off. How about you? How did you get into analysing uh, football and Liverpool? Well, I think it's always been quite a natural thing for me, I suppose. I've always been quite an analytical person. Um, the way that I think, I just, I, I'm just naturally inclined, I think, to just think about reasons why why certain things are happening and, and things like that. Um, and I, as I got older, um, I just started reading about football and, and things like that. Started to started to develop an understanding that was maybe beyond the man on the street, if you like. And then I started to basically apply my thinking during matches and things. And it got to a point where the the perception I had on the game went a little bit beyond, let's say, the the people that I tend to watch the match with. So I just I just created the Twitter account as a means of um you know, basically tweeting me thoughts and tweeting me observations and things like that and maybe starting up a writing profile and things. And it just kind of um, spiralled from there, really. Obviously, started to develop followers, started to make videos, started to write for various different websites, and it, it resulted in me eventually getting taken on. Um, and now I, now I analyse football full-time. Excellent. So what do you do outside of the Analyzing Anfield podcast? Do you, do you work with clubs and things? No, it's um, I I I'm I'm employed by Reach, so Reach used to be called Trinity Minute, uh, but they got renamed. But Reach is the brand that owns the likes of the Liverpool Echo and the Manchester Evening News, the Newcastle Chronicle, uh, the Birmingham Mail, Football London. It Reach owns various different publishing brands across the country, and each one of those brands has usually at least one club attached to it um, and my role is basically centred around say for example Marcus Rashford is out of form then the Manchester Evening News will commission me to basically find out why by looking beyond the usual stuff and actually analysing his game as to what, what the problem may be whether the tactics suit him whether the manager suits him what the numbers say and you know, all things like that so I tend to write for for various different publishers but with me being from Liverpool the Liverpool level is my base I'm obviously a Liverpool supporter so that's that's where the podcast has came from it's, it stems from you know me being a red and me being already based in, in the Echo office I suppose yeah great and do you find it more challenging to 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 write for uh, about other clubs, like if you're if you're analysing Newcastle, or is it easier because you're there's less emotion involved? Um, no, I don't. I don't particularly struggle. Um, I've always said that I'm I'm a football fan as well as being just a Liverpool fan. I think there's a there's a bit of a distance between those two. Um, obviously, I watch a lot of football, and because of the the platforms that I have available, um, you know, various websites and things like that that I'm able to use. You know, it it just provides me with enough enough weapons, if you like, to actually tackle the problems that are presented to me. Um, it sounds like a dream role, and it is. It can be a little bit tough if, 
say, for example, Nottingham Forest contact me and they want to know why the team can't score goals or, you know, whatever it may be, they can be generally quite challenging because on the whole, I don't tend to watch a lot of Nottingham Forest, but um, most of the jobs are Premier League and I watch a lot of Premier League football. So I, I usually, the commissions that I'm sent, I will already have opinions on beforehand. So usually I'm able to take that into the piece, you know, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a it sounds like a great role that you've got there. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of using stats, because I know that there are certain pundits who are usually um, over fifty years old. I don't have a, you know, anything against anybody over fifty, but there is a certain type of pundit who still is sort of anti the idea of stats and anti anti the idea of using analysis to to inform your opinion. Um, I just wonder what what you think the you know the benefits are or, or the drawbacks of of using stats. Like, why does it help to use them, or can it hinder as well? Um, it's an interesting question. I think basically the the benefits is that it's as you say it's, it's using statistics. It's another means of gaining an insight. Basically, um, a lot of people are maybe inclined to either use their eyes or use the numbers. There's, there's absolutely no reason why you can't use both. And by using both, you should be, you know, improving your knowledge, getting more insight in. Um, and there's, there's various different reasons why you should why you should incorporate stats in, into your um, into your analysis. Obviously, it helps regarding scouting players. Naby Keita, Andy Robertson, Mohamed Salah. These are all players that Liverpool may not have picked up on as being potential world beaters if, you know, numbers weren't applied to them, basically. Um, and stats can also provide a, a really accurate understanding of future performance. So whether a player is overperforming or underperforming, whether a player is likely to continue at his current scoring rate, whether a team are likely to continue winning. Um, I'll use an example on that. So, Mohamed Salah, for example, he... In his first season at Liverpool, he obviously scored, I think it was around 32 league goals. Um, and, you know, he was deemed as the next big thing, which he is, you know, I'm not denying that. But the following season, he scored, I think, around 22. Um, and people were inclined to say he's dropped off, he's not the same player, and that sort of thing. But beneath the surface, according to expected goals at least, in both seasons, he was expected to score around 22 um, so what what a person who's taken in the stats would, would, would consider that to be is you know season number one was basically a hot streak a hot run of form that virtually no player can, can sustain and the following season he's still exactly the same player still performing to exactly the same level it's just maybe he hasn't had the walk in certain moments he hasn't had the finishing in certain moments, but still very much the same player. And, um, you know, Manchester United, another example, when Solskjaer came in, again, deemed as the next big thing. I think he won something like 10 of his opening 13 games or something. Um, Rio Ferdinand said, give him a contract and all, and all this stuff. He gave him the contract and then very quickly results fell off a cliff. And that was because if you looked at the expected goals beneath the surface, they would have suggested that United are winning here. But most of their wins are basically a flip of a coin. Um, 
and it was a matter of time before those flips start going against United, basically. So there's certainly the perks. They're just a few examples of, of why I think you should incorporate um, analytics and, and numbers beneath the surface beyond just the eye test. Well, it's a marvellous answer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of data analysis in, in football, it, it's changed quite a lot. It's becoming bigger and bigger. I wonder if you can comment on that. I mean, you mentioned some, some software things that you used before and some of the tools you used. I mean, what new things have, have come about in data analysis? What, what innovations have there been? Well, it, I suppose it depends how far back uh, you want to go. Um, it, it's gradually, we're getting more and more thorough with what we know. And yeah, I mean, it's expected goals, for example. Expected goals teaches us, I mean, it's taught us various things, but just basics such as, as a team, when you're attacking, it makes very little sense to shoot from long range, for example. Um, so you'll, you'll see gradually over the course of many years in the Premier League, teams have generally stopped doing that, really. Um, it happens a lot less now. Teams generally as well, if you if you have used analytics to analyse the game, you'll recognise that um, teams basically stop sitting on leads as much. It's not as much of a of a sure fire defensive approach to to simply gain a lead and sit on it. Uh, little things like that. Basically, there's, there's there's plenty of things that that it, it's taught us over the course of a number of years now. But how to attack, where to attack, through the pitch. I think Liverpool personally. Liverpool do something behind the scenes. They've got a data analysis unit um, and they analyse something called pitch control. And it's to do with, you know, the positioning of certain players and how that relates in regards to control in certain areas of a pitch. And I think that's had a, I personally think that's had a massive influence on how Liverpool attack and how Liverpool play the game. Because um, Liverpool obviously attack a lot through the likes of Andy Robertson and Saint Alexander Arnold, and in midfield, Henderson, Wijnaldum, Fabinho, Milner, whoever it may be, they tend to take very few risks on the ball. They tend to play safe and basically just offer an element of control. And I, I think that's calculated, and I think that stems from the analytics department. Really, I think that's a, but maybe a bit of a eureka moment. Um, I think they've derived that. You, you gain the attacking benefits by attacking down the flanks and on the inside right positions, the inside left positions. And I think the most important area to pitch to defend is obviously the centre. And I think Liverpool have built a team accordingly, basically to execute that game plan. Well, it's very fascinating stuff. Yeah, of course, yeah, you mentioned Liverpool's team. Uh, we have uh, Ian Graham, I believe his name is, Dr Ian Graham. People with, you know... Degrees from uh, the top universities, PhDs and analysis, things like like that go way over my head. Uh, but uh, I find it fascinating. I also find it fascinating to, to, to think about stuff that, that is currently viewed as unmeasurable. Um, you know, things like mentality, for example. And I wonder if, you know, in future these things will actually become measurable in certain ways like for example with mentality i was thinking well if you ha if you can collect uh, collect stats or, or or data to to find out how much a player runs 
Um, given your Twitter handle at distance covered, do follow him, listeners. Uh, Josh here's he's fantastic. But if you think about the distance covered of of of, of a player when their team is two nil down or three nil down, it can tell you something good about their mentality. For example, I mean, is that some kind of can these unmeasurables become measurable in the future? I think, as I say, gradually with time, the technology is becoming more and more advanced. And we can now analyse, as I've said, things like pitch control and positioning. And, you know, Liverpool are now steps ahead in terms of measuring, you know, the value basically of every single touch on the pitch. Um, Whereas expected goals, for example, purely measures the value of the shot that's taken at the end of the move. Liverpool seem to have a, a system in process that you know, say for example, Van Dijk makes a pass um, 20 yards from our own goal. Liverpool will have a process that that pass will have a value and every player at the, at, at the end of the match will have a value based on what he's contributed and that sort of thing. And I think Liverpool analyse and scout players based on that. Um, the, the possession value added, basically. Um Hence why Salah shows up, hence why Robertson shows up, and hence why, if you look at Liverpool's first team starting eleven, the actual first team that you would label as Liverpool's favourite eleven, with um, you know, you know, the players in it, every single player, whether he's a goalkeeper, a left back, a centre back, a defensive midfielder, every single player has some sort of offensive trait. Even Allison, you know, Allison's one of the most attacking goalkeepers you can think of. Andy Robertson very attacking. Van Dijk, you think of Van Dijk from set pieces. You think of Van Dijk's cross-field diagonal passes. Joe Gomez, you think of Joe Gomez is splitting through balls that he plays through the centre of the pitch. Matip does the same. Matip's another threat from set pieces. So these are players that Liverpool have picked up on based on analysing you know, every single touch that these players are making, how dangerous they are in comparison to other players that play in those positions. And it's resulted in Liverpool having a really, really dangerous team now. In terms of mentality, that's a little bit trickier. Um, I understand what you're saying regarding distance covered, but certain players, basically because of their role or because of the system that they're playing and you know, whatever it may be, won't be responsible for covering a certain amount of distance. Um, I'm just thinking, I don't know, maybe a, a defensive midfielder in, in an in Atletico Madrid, Madrid system maybe he'll cover slightly less ground than a Jordan Henderson. Does that mean the Atletico Madrid midfielder is less committed? Possibly not, so it's tricky. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen in future the, the extent to which we'll reach the garden analysis. Yeah, fascinating answer. One player who had slipped under the radar of many top clubs. I'm sure they looked at him, but then decided, maybe based off the stats, that he wasn't worth it was Virgil van Dijk uh, who if you look at I mean I, I tend to look on a very superficial level at certain sites like whoscored.com and v, VVD often scores around 6.5 out of 10 in terms of stats because he doesn't make many tackles he doesn't make many interceptions etc um, because but then when you watch the game, you know how brilliant he is because he just rules the roost from the back just by his presence and his reading of the game and organising other people. So 
I don't know what I mean have is it possible that there's there are more players out there I mean how come he stayed under the radar for so long and uh, you know how does he compare to like Harry Maguire for example for our next opponents Man United I think it's it's a difficult one regarding Van Dijk because if you're using numbers um, centre-backs and defenders really are notoriously difficult to judge accurately based on numbers simply because you know a lot of it is system related a lot of it's team related um, and you can't really get as as accurate of a read on a player if he's a defender as an attacker. For example, if Sadio Mane is attacking, there's an element of, you know, you you know how, why he's attacking. You know he's trying to score a goal. Um, there's an element of creative freedom in that role. Um, attacking is, is, is different to defending in that it is reliant on a player's quality and a player's vision and a player's inventiveness. Whereas if you look at a defender, you know, a lot of it is system related. Um and it's it's difficult. It's obviously easy to put a value on an attacking player based on a shot he takes or a cross he takes. It's difficult to attain values to a defender based on a clearance that he makes, for example, or a block that he makes. I think Van Dyke very clearly showed up in terms of aerial duels. He was obviously one of the most aerial dominant, aerially dominant players in England, which is obviously crucial if you're playing a an attack and pressing game. Because if you're pressing high up the field, more often than not, the opposing tactic to get away from that is to just hit the ball long. And if you've got centre-backs that can't deal with those aerial duels, you're going to concede counter-attacks from the likes of you know, maybe Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood who are going to get in the centre-back's faces and things like that. But having Van Dijk allows Liverpool to just send the ball right back again and restart another attack. Um, I think if you look at the numbers as well, you mentioned there that Van Dijk doesn't tend to tackle a great deal. And this is this, this refers back to your question earlier that certain pundits aren't, used to, aren't inclined to use stats. And I think it's important how you use stats whether you use the right stats and how you interpret those stats. So the fact that Van Dijk doesn't commit many tackles, for example, that would tell me that he is maybe the type of defender that makes attackers commit before committing himself. Obviously, a player in the opposite mould is maybe a Nicholas Otamendi. He'll maybe produce a lot more tackles than Van Dijk, but maybe his success rate will be a lot worse. Maybe he'll... He'll um, com- make a few more fouls and things like that, whereas Van Dijk won't. So it depends how you interpret certain stats, how you pair certain stats with others to get an accurate read on a certain player. Van Dijk's obviously a player who didn't show up in terms of injuries, not very many injuries at all. He showed up as a defender who was fast. Again, what I've just mentioned before, in terms of being useful in attack, a dangerous player in attack, set pieces and passing and things like that. So... He certainly showed up as a player for me who was very clearly ready to make a step up to a higher level. Um, I actually wrote a piece before we signed him, I think maybe maybe a year before we signed him or so, just suggesting that you know this is the kind of centre-back that Klopp needs. He needs a centre-back that's quite complete. Van Dijk, for me, showed up as that player, but for whatever reason, other clubs didn't didn't consider him as worth you know, 70 million, which is understandable, but I think it was quite clear that Van Dijk was was really at top level. 
yeah it's fascinated stuff yeah i mean it, it it is tricky i can see uh to judge defenders uh based on the stats but i mean you know in terms of our next opponents man united i mean harry Maguire, 80 million compared to vvd 75 although i don't think we should pay too much attention to transfer fees um and then of course wan bissaka versus trent alexander arnold i mean you know the the, the kind of there are a lot of doofuses on Twitter who, uh, you know, claim that Juan Bissak is better than Trent or Harry Maguire is better than VVD, uh, which is just complete nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Harry Maguire, for example, Harry Maguire shows up as equally as dominant as Van Dijk in the air. So he's certainly got that on his side. Um, and he's probably equally as dominant in possession as well. The um, the possession value per touch that I mentioned earlier that Liverpool have access to, he isn't really that's not really publicly accessible, so I couldn't really tell you the numbers on that. Um, I know Opta are working on a framework behind the scenes regarding that, but as I said, it's not publicly available. But I would be inclined to think that Maguire is probably as dangerous in possession as Van Dijk. Just you know, he's very competent on the ball able to carry it into midfield, make forward passes and things like that. Again, a threat from set pieces. But I think the difference is he, he's just simply beaten more often. He loses more one-on-one duels and things like that. And I assume his defensive duel success rate is probably lower than Van Dijk's. And he's obviously slower, much slower player, which is huge if you're playing on, you know, defending on the halfway line, trying to play a, trying to play a proactive game by pressing there's lots of space in behind. So Harry Maguire, if that if that ball is played into that space, Harry Maguire is probably going to struggle to keep up with a Mohamed Salah or a Sadio Mane. Whereas if that's Van Dijk, Van Dijk probably keeps up with them. So does Joe Gomez and the ball gets cleared. Um, so I think Maguire's a top defender and he'll help in certain areas, but he was just not to the level of Van Dijk and I think that's that's the cost really of not pouncing on a player when he's readily available you know waiting 18 months maybe and then signing Harry Maguire so and I think <clears throat> in terms of one Pesaka he's a player who obviously very good defensively in terms of 1v1s but he, he's involved in a lot of defensive duels too goes to the ground a bit too much for my liking um, but in comparison to Trent considering the teams they play for, two proactive teams trying to be dominant, you would like the player who's better in possession, ultimately, and that's Trent. Trent is unlike any other fullback in Europe based on what he's contributing on the ball. Wan-Bissaka is very average in that regard. So Wan-Bissaka is useful if you're trying to play a game such as Crystal, Crystal Palace, Burnley, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea and Mourinho's days, Chelsea and Antonio Conte's days, maybe. <clears throat> but if you're trying to play proactively and you're trying to attack, you're trying to attack for large portions of the game, Trent is obviously much more useful. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, Juan Bissaka. Um, so Juan Bissaka is not as good as Trent, basically. Harry Maguire is not as good as VVD. Have Man United got anybody any good? One player for me that I do think is is quite underrated is Marcus Rashford. I think he's a I think he's he's got everything there to be a really really top player. Um, I do think he's underrated as I said. He's really really quick. 
accelerates very quick, so he, re- he reaches his top speed, you know, really quickly. He's aggressive without the ball, strikes the ball really cleanly. Uh, he can dribble, he's strong, quite physical for his age. And considering his age, he's 22 years old, homegrown, English. He's, he's an ideal attacker that Man United have got right there. I understand he's a bit inconsistent, but I'm inclined to think that that stems from the club as a whole, really. The club as a whole are inconsistent. They're not at that level yet. And I'm inclined to think that he's not on the same level as Sadio Mane. But I'm, I'm inclined to think that if you was to take Sadio Mane out and put Rashford in to Liverpool's current team, I think Rashford is comfortably scoring over 20 goals in the Premier League this season. Um, so he's a player that, it's a shame he plays for Man United, but obviously he's out of Liverpool's reach in that regard, but he's a player that I'm sure Liverpool would like, and I'm sure Jürgen Klopp would, would use, and he'd benefit from him, and Rashford would benefit from Klopp, and that sort of thing. But beyond that, you know they haven't got many players there at all that would... Uh, that would take Liverpool's interest. I think that's safe to say. Yeah, very interesting. I I have got a, I don't know. Yeah, I am a little bit fearful of of Rashi, as they call him, um, this weekend. But yes, you're right. When you put him in the context of the team, we, I mean, player for player, we we, we have much by far the superior team. I would suggest. Um, uh, but in terms of Liverpool. Um, obviously, what is it? Twenty wins out of twenty-one matches, sixty-one points out of sixty-three. No team has ever done that before. Um, so, in terms of us, lots of people are saying we can still improve, and that's probably true, isn't it? And if so, in what areas do you think we can improve? I must say, it's it's a difficult one, this because Liverpool have reached a really, really high level. Um, there's no, it's no coincidence that Liverpool have gone so many games unbeaten and have lost one match in the Premier League since the start of last season, um, which is quite crazy. The defence is obviously watertight, superb. <clears throat> Liverpool don't tend to face many shots. Most of the shots that we do face, very few of them are on target. In attack, Liverpool are obviously highly capable. If we have to counter attack, we can counter attack. If we have to break it, if we have to break down a low block, we can break down a low block. Um, if we have to mix it in midfield and have a bit of a scrap, a bit of a fight, Liverpool can do that. Capable from throw-ins, capable from set pieces, um, free kicks. You know, it's it, it it really is a really complete team at the minute. So, I think Liverpool have almost, if I'm being totally honest, in terms of this current team at least. I think Liverpool have almost reached the end of their development, almost. I mean, if that's even possible, I'm not sure there even is an end of development phase, but it does get to a point whereby you look at the team and you think there's nothing real there's no real weaknesses we can we can improve on here. The only the only real areas are, you know, in defence and in attack, post better numbers than you're already posting. But beyond that, it really is a an incredibly complete team and you can't really ask for much more to be honest excellent answer yeah it, it's um, it's just brilliant to watch isn't it I mean you know the front three for example all around about the same age 27 28 uh, in their prime other players in their prime like Jeannie Vinaldo Jordan Henderson seems to be getting better and better it's very very exciting um, I was wondering in terms of our midfield 
what you think our best midfield is and and presumably you you you're going to say well it depends on the opposition maybe you would say that but let's say for example against atletico madrid or against manchester city um what do you think our best midfield three is it, it is a difficult one and for me it is dependence on the opposing team but ultimately i think it's important to say that it doesn't overly matter i think that the midfield is you know one of the areas of the pitch that it's really disciplined in there um You've just got to you've just got to showcase endeavour. You've got to be hard working. You've got to be in control of your own game. You've got to take maybe a few risks and things like that, and let other players start to impose their attacking states on the on the play while you just almost sit behind the ball and keep things ticking over and keep things tight and compact. So it's a difficult one. I did like last season the balance of Navi Keita, Fabinho, Henderson. I must say I did like that when it was um we I think we used that for a couple of games in a row. And I think it offers a good blend of a variety of traits. The shortfalls of certain players were picked up by the others and, and things like that. Um but the problem with that, that leaves out Wine Aldum, who, you know, is is brilliant. So it's a difficult one. Against the likes of Atletico Madrid, I think it's imp- it would be important to include a player in the mould of a navigator because navigator is unlike most of our midfielders in terms of he's just unpredictable on the ball. He tends to do things that are unconventional, whereas most of our other midfielders do things that are safe. Um, and that, that can hinder Liverpool sometimes when Naby takes certain risks when he shouldn't. But it can also you know, bring benefits. It can also help breaking down the team. And considering we're facing the best defence in Spain and the best defence in the Champions League when I last checked, you know, we will need players that are dangerous on the ball. We will need players that are unpredictable. We will need players that are going to help in regard to disrupting the oppo- the opposition shape. So, I think Case will have to be included there. But you know, it's it, it it's ultimately a case of we have plenty of midfielders, all of which can do a really really high quality job. So, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, excellent stuff. I, <clears throat> Atletico Madrid. I think it's a really hard draw for us, but. We'll have to be at the top of our game to get through. Uh, the other main question about our our team is the best centre-back partner for Virgil van Dijk. Uh, Virgil's obviously incredibly good. Joe Gomez, six clean sheets in a row in the Premier League for him. Um, and But what do you think? What, what do the stats say? What's your opinion? I think on this one, I would probably side with Joe Gomez. Um, I said this on last week's Analyzing Anfield podcast, actually. Um, I just I consider that player. Put, put it this way, I think one of Van Dijk's biggest strengths is the fact that he's not, he hasn't really got a weakness. You can't really attack Van Dijk in a certain way that will cause him problems or that he'll struggle with. He's just such an adaptable player, and that's because of the tools that he's got at his disposal, basically. Um, and I think if you look at Matup, really all-round player, good player, but he's slow. If you look at Lovren. Again, good player, airily, airily dominant and all that stuff, all the good stuff. But again, little bit, little bit slow. Although he's a bit faster than Matip, and as well as that, maybe a little bit prone to the occasional mistake. If you look at Gomez, Gomez, in a sense, is another mini Van Dijk, really. In that his biggest strength is that he doesn't really have weakness. Obviously, very, very strong, very quick, good on the ball. Good aerially, uh, aggressive, 
you know, all those things. So I think in certain moments, when you're playing such a high line like Liverpool do, his pace really comes in handy. And, you know, there was moments against Wolves, comes to mind. A ball was played over the top. Sent Alexander-Arnold slips. And I think it was Vinagre. It was 3-1 goal. Joe Gomez has to make these big strides to make up the ground and eventually gets close enough to pull off Vinagre as he takes his shot and he hits over the bar. But I think if that's massive, or if that's Lovren, the player still takes a shot, but he takes a shot under a little bit less pressure. As a result, he may find the net a bit easier and that sort of stuff. So I don't think it's that much of a coincidence that Liverpool's defence on the whole, in terms of the shots we're facing, isn't that different. But the clean sheets are being the clean sheet is starting to get starting to mount up now. And I think that stems from Gomez, who's just simply able to put off players and make up that extra yard in certain moments compared to compared to a lot of them, or a massive. It's, it's it's basically trickier for opposing teams, opposing players to take shots in good areas against Liverpool that are unpressurised, where you've got time to strike the ball and things like that. So I would go with Gomez. Great stuff, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I think Gomez, yeah, his maybe his positional in terms of playing the offside line, he just doesn't quite have the experience enough to to do that as well as uh, Lovren or Matip who do that very well. But yeah, you're exactly right. His his recovery is is incredible. Um, I just got a couple of quick questions to finish. The first one is it's just a prediction for um for the game on the weekend, Liverpool Man United. Last season, I saw. We had 36 shots with 11 on target. I think they only had six shots. We, we won 3-1, of course. But, I mean, this season's going to be different, isn't it? So uh, that's uh, my penultimate question. What's your prediction, please? It's a difficult one to predict because United are actually really, really good in defence. We've got one of the best defences in the league, along with Liverpool. Um, but having said that, it's Liverpool Manchester United. It's at Anfield. Liverpool will want to keep going and will want to improve upon the performance that was shown at Spurs. So I do think Liverpool will win. I think maybe 2-0, possibly 3-0. I don't think United will score. Um, and it just depends how good United's defence is on the day and how, how hungry Liverpool are to really put them to the sword or not. But, yeah, I think I'm going to go 2-0, I think. We'd be delighted with that. Absolutely fantastic. 2-0 is my favourite result. I love 2-0. means you attack well, means you defend well, and the other team never gives up. It's really, that would be amazing. Um, so the, the final question, um, obviously you, you keep your eye on lots of different uh, Premier League matches, you said, and other football as well. Um, in terms of transfers, has anybody caught your eye who you think we should sign? Again, it's, it is it is tough considering Liverpool's current level. Obviously, Liverpool are very complete <clears throat> and the club is smart enough to, as we saw last summer, I think the club is smart enough to, you know, if the player isn't there, then don't go looking for them, basically. Um, only sign players that you have to sign and things like that and spend based on how much you need that player. For example, we needed a goalkeeper badly. So, you know, 60, 70 million made sense. We needed a centre-back badly. So, 75 million for Van Dijk made sense. But, you know, we didn't really need a rotation option for the front three that badly. So, we ended up opting against it. Then we get Minamino in for, you know, only 7.5 million. So, I think Liverpool are really good at spending based on their need 
how how big their need is. And again, going into the summer, I'm not really sure where Liverpool have big big needs. I think Liverpool certainly need a left back and a player that shows up for me who. You know, he would, he would take my interest. I think he makes sense as Jamal Lewis at Norwich. I think he'd be a sensible sign of homegrown player, English, tall, athletic, quick, uh, attacking. You know, all, all those good things. Um, and I think in attack, if Liverpool were to to sign a real high quality attacker, because I think at the start of next season, this is I, I might be wrong in saying this, but I think Salah. Firmino and Mane are all going to be 29 or maybe 28, 29. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure on that, but the last thing we want really is for all of those three players to start progressing at the same time. You have to start eventually planning for the next generation. So if Liverpool are going to do that in the summer, I would like us to go down the route of a maybe a team over Um or Jaden Sancho. I think they're probably the two players that make the most sense. Timo Werner's the ultimate Liverpool player from what I've seen. He looks like a basically a right foot Mo Salah. Equally as dangerous, equally as fast, equally, equally as inclined to, to score and provide chances for others. Short, stocky, German, so he goes and you know, coincides with clock. Just a sign and that makes a load of sense. And I think he's I think he's got a release clause over at Leipzig. I think that was the conditions that he, I think he signed a new deal with you to having a release clause. So I think that'll be a sign that makes a lot of sense. And then obviously Jaden Sancho, again, English homegrown. You've got potentially, you know, ten years of an attacking talent there. And if you do sell him at some point he's probably gonna get sold for more than what you're buying for. Very dangerous player, unpredictable. Plenty of room to develop. So I think those are three players there I think would make sense for Liverpool but it remains to be seen considering how how clever Liverpool are and how inclined they are to operate outside the box it's really difficult to predict you know who Liverpool are actually going to sign Well it's a, it, it's a really good answer and I'd, I'd be happy with any of those uh, totally over the overjoyed uh, thank you so so much Josh for, for joining me today it's been really really nice hearing hearing your views so um, we can follow you on Twitter at Distance Covered and listen to the Analyzing Anfield podcast as well, right? I mean, is there any other particular writing you would like to to plug? I mean, um, well, I, I do write, you know, every day, every single day. It's just I don't I don't post every single piece that I write. I only post the stuff that I think will maybe take people's interest or things like that. This week, I'm planning on writing a piece on. The, the pitch control thing that I just mentioned earlier in the um, podcast about positioning and controlling the pitch and attacking down the flanks while you control the centre. I'm, I, I'm looking to write a piece on pitch control during the week, so maybe keep an eye out for that. But other than that, yeah, just follow me on Twitter and, and check out the, the weekly Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Liverpool Echo. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Um, I will definitely be doing that and I urge our listeners to do the same. Uh, thank you very much, Josh. Uh, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure. No problem, mate. Thank you.